open the Bible together now. Oh, no. Got no power. All right. Uh, we are currently uh, in a series on the book of Jonah, and we're in Jonah chapter 1. We've kind of been parked there for a little while, but we're, uh, we're going to look at it once again this morning. Jonah chapter 1, you can turn in your Bible app or in your Bible or even uh, to that portion of the bulletin to find Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 17. We're going to read Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 17. All right, here we go, beginning at verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can, you be asleep? how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking the man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. All this, the men, at this, sorry, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. So as I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, we're back in Jonah. We've been looking at Jonah for uh, a couple of weeks now. We're in our third week in the book of Jonah. And we were in this very same passage, at least most of this very same passage, just last week when we looked at how God interacted with the pagan sailors. And what we saw last week was that God pursued these pagan sailors. And what we're going to see this week is that God pursues, so let me just say, these were sort of the irreligious types, right? These were the, they were sort of moderately religious or, or nominally religious, and then as soon as the storm came up, they knew they needed to be very religious, and we, we saw how that's sort of rooted in a human impulse and a longing that, that human beings have, and, uh, and we saw that, that God pursued those pagan uh, sailors to the point where they finally acknowledged Him as the God who saves them. And you know, that's the, 
that's the theme, basically, of the whole book of Jonah. If you wanted to know what's the main theme of the book of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, and we're going to look more closely at this in a couple of weeks, but Jonah says this, salvation comes from the Lord. That's the theme of the book. That's the main message of the book, that salvation comes or belongs to the Lord. And we saw that last week with the pagans, and now we're going to see how that's unfolding this week in the life of Jonah. There is an outline in the back of your bulletin. Um, You can just ignore it because I I hate it. I I gave it to Megan, and uh, and then uh, when I looked back at it again this morning, I was like, that's a terrible outline. That's no good. Ignore the outline. I don't really have an outline, I guess, is what I'm saying. I still have a sermon but I don't really have much of an outline. So uh, you can just take notes in that space if that's good for you. And of course, we'll uh, take questions at the end of the the message if we have time, if you would uh, have any questions that you'd like to to ask. Now, what we're going to see in how God deals with Jonah, we're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to see how God pursues Jonah in the ship, that's this morning, And then we're going to see how God pursues Jonah in the fish. And that's two weeks from now. The reason it's two weeks from now is because I'm actually away next weekend. uh, And uh, and we're going to have a a guest preacher here that weekend. So, So today, it's how God pursues Jonah in the ship. Two weeks from now, how God pursues Jonah in the fish. And what we're going to see is that God, the God of the Bible, is a hunter, that the God of the Bible pursues us. He chases us down like a hunter. Now, that is an idea worth thinking about, okay? That's not just something that you should say, oh, okay, that's actually an idea really worth wrestling with and worth thinking about because, you see, if you were to ask most people about religion and what is religion and and what does it mean to be religious, most people would say that religion is about humankind's search for God, humankind's investigation of the God, of humankind's attempt to connect with the divine. It's all different language trying to essentially say the same thing, that religion is the way that human beings try to uh, reach God, get to know God. And so the picture is, is, is a picture of a mountain and God's up on the mountaintop and human beings are at the bottom and they're taking paths on their way up to the top to meet with God and discover God and experience God and relate to God, etc., And there's a modicum of truth to that when it comes to virtually every other religion in the world. But when it comes to Christianity, one of the things that's absolutely unique about Christianity is is that Christianity says that nobody is seeking God, nobody's trying to climb the mountain, nobody cares a whit about who God is and what He's about. We're all trying to be our own gods and live our own ways, but God, amazingly enough, in His grace, decided to get up off the peak of the mountain and to come down to us. We're not looking for him, but he sure is looking for us. That's the description the Bible gives of the Christian God. And it is so obviously clear in the story of Jonah. Because God is pursuing him and pursuing him and hunting him relentlessly. Now, listen. 
ultimately, that is a very good thing for you and me. Ultimately, the fact that God is the one who's hunting us is an extremely good thing. It is great news for you and for me. Ultimately, it is. But here's the thing. Hmm. Presently, or today, or in the moment, it might seem like a very, very bad thing. There's a, a scholar by the name of Peter Lightheart. He's a pretty brilliant guy. And, and he says that God's relentless pursuit of his people is actually kind of like a horror story. Or at least a thriller. Okay? You know, that, you know how it works, right? So there's some villain, and the villain is chasing the protagonist. You know, there's, there's countless movies like this and countless stories like this. And the villain is relentless in his or her pursuit of the protagonist. And it seems like nothing can stop the villain. You know, they're closing in and you've been watching this movie for, let's say it's in a movie and you've been watching this movie for like an hour and a half and the villain is, is constantly one step behind the protagonist, but he just refuses to give up and he's hunting this, this protagonist down and, 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 it, and it goes through all these twists and turns and the tension is building and it seems like it is impossible to stop the villain because there's even this one scene where like a car comes out of nowhere and it crushes the villain and you think, oh, the protagonist is now safe. But then all of a sudden, there's a close-up of the car, and you see a hand come out from underneath it, right? And then the car starts shaking and rattling, and then it rolls off, and then the, the villain gets up again, and you're like, oh no, he's still alive! Can nothing stop this villain? I'm taking this all from a movie that some of you are old enough to remember. Whenever I want to do a movie analogy, I date myself so badly but how many of you are familiar with Terminator 2? All right, so this will work with a few people. No matter what, no matter what, that Terminator just keeps coming. Now, I know this may sound weird, but in a way, that's what God is like. We see that in this story. Now listen, it can be scary to be hunted by God. It can be terrifying to be hunted by God. But ultimately, it is good to be hunted by God. And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. So here we go, the story of Jonah being hunted by God. Remember that Jonah, he travels a long way to, from where he lives to Joppa, and he gets on this ship. It says in the text that he gets on the ship, and the ship takes off, and he goes down into the belly of the ship, all right, and he enters into a deep sleep. Now, what are we to make of that? How is it that Jonah is able to enter into this deep sleep? What's the, what's the lesson here? And here it is. Disobedient. That's what Jonah is being. He's being disobedient because God called him to one thing and he's chosen to do another thing and so he's running from God and he admits that he's running from God because he tells even the sailors that he's running from God. So he is being disobedient. But here's the thing about disobedience. Disobedience is draining. Disobedience is tiring. Disobedience is 
debilitating. The strange thing about it is, is that it seems exhilarating at first, and it seems like it's life-giving and energizing at first, but what happens is, is that over time, disobedience actually wears you down. It eats at you. If God is hunting you, if God has set his affection on you, if God has chosen you and he says, you are my child, he will hunt you to the point where where your own disobedience will feel uh, uh, absolutely uh, draining and and tiring and exhausting to you. And, And it will eat at you and you'll feel like there is no escape. Remember, it took Jonah, who knows how long it took Jonah to go from where he was to the port at Joppa. That was an 80 kilometer trek by foot, on roads that are nothing like the roads we have today. He is absolutely determined to get away from God. Then he gets on this ship, and remember a couple weeks ago we said for a Jew to get on a ship to go onto the Mediterranean Sea was insane because they were terrified of that sea. They thought that's where chaos lived. They weren't even sure if God would would go with them if they went onto that sea. And, And Jonah is willing to do all of this, and yet he cannot escape God. And so the last thing that he can think of to do to escape God is, is maybe if I just go to sleep. Now some people have thought that maybe Jonah falling asleep was sort of his conscience being seared. You know, Jonah was at the point where he didn't care anymore and he was quite comfortable with what he was doing and so he fell asleep. And some scholars have argued that. I don't think that's what's going on and here's why. It says in verse 10 that Jonah told the sailors that he was running away from God. And therefore, it's still on his mind. It's still eating at him. He's still thinking about it. And the second reason why is because the text tells us that he went below deck. First of all, he went down to Joppa, got a ship, and then he went below deck to go to sleep. These are all images meant to show us that Jonah is more and more isolating himself. He's, he's, he's trying to hide himself. He's trying to make himself alone. See, this, this is the reality. Don't you see this in yourself? Sin loves the darkness, okay? When you are disobeying, when you know that you are living in a way that is not pleasing to God, what do you do? You isolate yourself. You hide yourself. You cut yourself off from people. You cut yourself off from family. Maybe you cut yourself off from friends. Maybe you start cutting yourself off from your church community. Some people don't like it that I harp. I harp on church attendance. I do. So watch out. But one of the reasons I harp on church attendance is because in 15 years of ministry, I have discovered that one of the first telltale signs of a person who is in spiritual trouble is their church attendance starts to go... And it makes complete sense. Who, when you're sinning and you're caught up in it and you're disobeying God, who wants to be around God and His people? You're trying to get away from Him. I have known people in my life who I can gauge their sort of spiritual health, so to speak, by how quickly they respond to texts. Maybe it's because I'm the pastor, right? So, you know, whenever the pastor text you, most people go, probably a little bit, right? That little guilty conscience, what does he want, right? And I'm like, why is it always a bad thing that I'm contacting you? But anyhow, that's just what what I got to live with as a pastor. The point is this, though. Here's the point. 
To obey God is hard. There is no doubt about it. Listen, trust me. I know it is hard because I've tried and I have failed so many times and in so many ways to obey God, to follow His will, to do what He calls me to do. It is hard, but, but, but understand this. If God is hunting you, if God has set His affection on you, if God has called you His child, disobedience is impossible. That's what David is saying in Psalm 32. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. What else does he say in Psalm 32? He says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Man, would I love to talk about the physical manifestations of disobedience, but I can't. We don't have time to do it this morning. But the fact is, God will not let us get away with it. Even if you try to turn it off by an exhausted sleep, that won't stop God. Because He is the ultimate hunter. He is the, he is the ultimate terminator. Look, God sends this storm. What does he do for Jonah? He sends an entire storm. He, he manipulates the forces of nature. And interestingly enough, that storm does not wake Jonah up, but it gets the attention of the pagan sailors. And they go and they wake Jonah up to face his disobedience and to face his God. It's kind of sad, actually, if you think about it. It's a bit of a rebuke to the church and to Christians. Here's the thing. When, when you're a believer and you're in disobedience, you are a follower of Jesus by Christ, but you are in disobedience, you are running from Him willfully and, and purposefully, it makes you useless to the rest of the world. Because you are so self-absorbed and because you are so isolated in your own little world and worried about yourself and trying to deal with your own things that you have nothing to offer the world. Here the captain comes to him and says, get up man, pray to your God. We're all praying to our gods, we're all trying to get out of this and you are fast asleep in the hold. You're of no use to us. Become useful to us. And you know, I read somewhere, I can't remember when and I can't remember where, but I read somewhere that the best gift Christians can give to the people around them is their holiness. And I read that the first time and I thought, what on earth does that mean? Not pride, not their pride, not, I got it all together. I'm doing the right things. You suck. I'm great. No, 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 their own holiness. What is biblical holiness? Biblical holiness is saying, I will be set apart for God and for His use. And that means that I will have the heart of Jesus Christ. I will pursue the things that matter to Jesus Christ. I will have compassion. I will have empathy. I will have commitment. I will have love. you got those things. You've got, you're useful to the people around you. And I went, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. Listen, you, I'm always harping on getting to know your neighbors and you need to be in your community and stuff like that. You know what your neighbors need? You know what your neighbors who are having marriage troubles need? They need to come over and have dinner with you and see a husband and wife who interact well and healthy together. You know what your neighbors need? 
You know, your neighbor who's always concerned about, about and anxious about what's happening to them in their lives, they need to spend a little time with you and see how you have this, this weird calm that is rooted in your relationship with a sovereign God who you know loves you and takes care of you. They need to rub shoulders with that. They need your holiness. But if you're walking in disobedience, you've got no holiness to give. You're of no use. And what is so incredible in this story is that God uses these sailors not just to confront Jonah, but to force him to do his job. They ask all these questions, right? This is verse 8. Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Then in verse 11, what should we do to make uh, the sea calm down for us? They're asking all these questions. They're peppering him with questions. And these questions force Jonah to do what he was supposed to do. Because what's his response to the questions? In verse 9, he preaches to them. He testifies And it's pretty astounding. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah tells these sailors exactly what they needed to hear. And as we saw last week, it was effective because they are converted through the preaching of Jonah, who was doing everything in his power to avoid God and doing what God called him to do. God Actually, look at it. This is the point. God uses the force of nature. He uses the, the, the he, he, he manipulates his relationship with these pagan sailors. He uses everything at his disposal, which is everything, to accomplish his plan, to accomplish his goals. Now, I know Some of you, if you're tracking with me and you hear me say that, what you want me to do is you want me to explain how in the world does it work that God can be in control of everything to accomplish His plans, and yet I have free will. And when I look at all the bad things in the world that happen, are you saying that God makes all those things happen? You want want a big old explanation about that, and I'd love to give it to you, but you're going to have to get that after church. Because the point right now is, in this story and in this message, is that God cannot be stopped. He is the ultimate terminator who always gets his way. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. If you are running from him and he has set his sights on you, Resistance is futile. That's for you. He's going to wear you down. He will wear you down. And that's, that's what he does with Jonah. It's, it's amazing. In verse 11, they say, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, this is going to take some deep thinking. So if you've been having a hard time tracking before, it's going to be really hard now. Because what Jonah does here 
is Jonah gives up. If you read the text, it, it, it sounds like Jonah basically, he gives up. He knows he was rebelled. He knows that he was a bad witness to the, to the pagans. He knows that he'd blown it. He knows that he's defeated. But he doesn't really repent. He gives up. He says, it's my fault that the storm has come upon you. So he's shown pity for them. And that's a good thing. He's showing sympathy uh, to these pagans. But, but when he says, drown me, he says, drown me so that the storm will become calm and you'll live. So he says, drown me for your sakes, okay? Look, we're all going to die or I'm going to die. He thinks they're going to die. They think they're going to die because when he says, throw me in, they're like, no, we can't do that. And they actually try to row to shore. And just as a little aside, that's another example again that you cannot stop God because the storm got worse and they realized that they're actually rowing against the will of God and they gave up. But the point is, is that Jonah gave up. But he didn't repent. He says, fine. You win. You know, it's the scene in the movie where the protagonist is being hunted down by the villain and they're cornered somewhere and the villain storms in and the, the protagonist pulls out their gun and they try to fire and they go click, 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 click. And they're out of bullets and you see them drop their hands and they throw the gun on the floor and they say, I give up. That's Jonah. Kill me now. See, this is a forced surrender, you see. This is not a voluntary surrender. This is a forced surrender. And if God is hunting you, He will force you to surrender. And that's a horror story. But it's a horror story with a twist. Because in verse 17 it says, The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Hmm. I actually like how the ESV puts it. It says that the Lord appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah. It, it, Jonah is running from God and fighting the storm. And what will be the consequence of that? He will die. Him, the sailors, they're all goners. But when Jonah surrenders, when he finally gives in, he's saved. See, the fish is not... God's judgment on Jonah. The fish was appointed as God's salvation for Jonah. But the point is this. Disobedience may feel like life, but it ultimately leads to death. Surrender may feel like death, but it ultimately leads to life. I told you that story before, I think, of a, of a man who, who uh, fell into water below a dam that had a whirlpool in it. 
And he swam and he swam and he swam and he was trying to get out of this whirlpool. But every time he was just about out of the whirlpool, it would suck him back in. And he would get swirled around in the whirlpool. And he swam and he swam and he swam. And this went on forever. And people on the shore, they didn't know what to do. They couldn't help him. All they could do was watch in horror while this guy was getting more and more and more tired until eventually he lost all his strength and he gave up and the whirlpool sucked him under. And the thing is, is that as soon as he went down, having given in, 30 seconds later, he popped up downstream. And if he had just given up right away, taken a deep breath and went limp and let the whirlpool suck him under, he would have survived. And here's Jonah, the moment he gave in, the moment in his mind that he said, this is a death, was the moment that God's salvation poured into him and swept down upon him. You see, God's relentless pursuit of you can feel horrible. It can feel terrorizing. It can feel like, it can feel like Terminator 2. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe this morning you, you are running from God. You, you, we don't know it. I don't know it. But you know it deep down inside. You're running from God. And you can feel His breath on your neck. You can feel like He is closing in on you. But you're thinking to yourself, if He gets His hands on me, I'm dead. He'll kill my freedom. He'll take away my joy. He'll kill my dreams. He'll kill my happiness. You're miserable running, but you can't believe that if you would surrender that you would know life and you hear his footsteps and they terrify you. It's a horror story. It's a horror story except for the gospel. Because you know in the typical horror story, the protagonist is running for their lives from death. But the gospel is that you and I are running headlong into our deaths and God is pursuing us with life. It's actually the anti-horror story. Centuries after Jonah, God sent Jesus Christ, His Son, into this world. And this Jesus Christ, His own Son, loved you so much that He stopped at nothing to rescue you. He pursued you to the earth. He pursued you to the cross. He pursued you to the grave. And He would stop at nothing to rescue you from the true villain, which is your own sin. You know, and there's these scenes in Terminator 2. So in Terminator 1, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the bad guy. But in Terminator 2, there's a new bad guy. But Arnold Schwarzenegger is in it too. And they're after the same people. And at the beginning of Terminator 2, this bad guy is chasing 
the people he's supposed to get. And Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up, and it's so fascinating to see on the faces of the protagonists, they see Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they think, no, it's him, he's after me again. And they turn, and they try to run from him, and he's chasing them down, and they're trying to get away from him. But then the real villain shows up, the other Terminator, and they're caught between the two, and they see Arnold Schwarzenegger, he pulls out his gun, and he cocks it and loads it, and he points, and they think they're going to die, and they duck like that, and then boom, 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 he shoots down the other enemy. And they're like, you, you're here to save me, not to kill me? And at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, but it's like 25 years old, if you haven't seen it yet, tough noogies. Arnold actually gives his life for John Connor. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Terminator, though, because he was never a villain. He's always been the hero, and he stops at absolutely nothing to chase us down. So what do you do? Well, it's the beauty of the gospel, and it's going back to the very thing we started with, Stop running. Just stop running. God is pursuing you and He is hunting you, but you don't have to find Him. He's found you. He's already found you, and all you need to do is stop running, surrender. Look at the cross and see that he is not against you. He is for you. He is for you in ways that you can't even yet imagine. And you have nothing to fear. Now, I know that art sometimes is a way to get across a truth that is very hard to get across through what's called propositional language, me telling you God is hunting you and that's good. That's propositional language. Sometimes art can depict these truths in ways that, that reach us that, that words can't. And so I, I quoted a song on the beginning, at the, on the front of the bulletin by Sufjan Stevens. Some of you have heard of him, Sufjan Stevens. He's a, he played actually at the Grammys just this year, so he's no small potatoes, okay? He's a Christian, and he talks about, in his song, Seven Swans, it's actually related to the book of Revelation, I won't go into that, but he talks about the relentless pursuit of God. He will take you, if you run, he will chase you. He will take you, if you run, he will chase you, because he is the Lord. Go home and just YouTube that song and listen to it. It's, the reason I like it is because it gets across the, the horror and the beauty because it's a very haunting song. It's not a light melody. You probably won't ever hear us sing it as a praise and worship song here, but it is a powerful expression of this theme. And I want you to experience it. God is a hunter, but he is a good hunter. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust the hunter that you are.
Help us to love you as the hunter that you are, the one who came and sought us. Give us the the trust to surrender. Some of us need to surrender for the first time. All of us need to surrender again. Help us to do that. Give us a big vision of the cross of Jesus Christ to know that you will not crush us if we surrender, but you will save us. Through Jesus our Savior we pray. Amen.